Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Do you know anybody you would think of as elvish in the Tolkien-esque sense? Because Tolkien is so clearly thumbing the scales for the elves, talking about them as like too good for this world, a pure race far above the can of mankind and all the rest of it. But also aloof and disinterested and guilty. I think that there's an undercurrent of uh, darkness with the elves in Tolkien, at least my last reading. I've read the book a few times and... The last time I read it, I was like, well, okay, yeah, there's another, there's another thing. They're a melancholy, depressed, anemic race that has lived out its time. That's and, true. And is disappearing. And they're very protective and insular and arrogant. The thing is that they're quasi-immortal. They have perfect aim with the bow. They can walk on top of snow. You know, they can do all kinds of stuff that humans can't yeah. do. They don't sleep. They yeah, don't need to sleep. They don't need to sleep. And yet, at the same time, they leave, you know. When it's time for them to fight, they just fuck off. They go to their Western lands there where they live forever. We start with the hobbits and the hobbits are just so enamored with elves. They admire them and fear them. So we, we see them through their eyes. Yeah, that's a really interesting thought. An anemic and spent and depressed yeah. species. Yeah, it'd be cool to do something on Tolkien one day. Well, we'd spend a bit of time on Tolkien when we were talking right. about Le Guin. That's right. When we were talking about Le Guin, yeah. That's true. Maybe that's all the Tolkien we needed to do. I said everything I had to say about Tolkien in that episode, actually, now that I think of it. Or at least the, the essential point I wanted to make, which is that, like so many other writers, it's the same with Lovecraft, there's a kind of a popular version of that author that we all have in our heads that we can use as a kind of straw man to put him in his place. Whereas I think that if you read carefully, there are more facets to these authors, Tolkien, Lovecraft, and others than one would think, you know. And the problem oh, is that well, if, yeah. Yeah, if you go into it with that kind of partial image of the author in your head, you can read the books and just see that, and then you'll never see all the other stuff. I think it's important that when you read a book, whether it's Jane Austen or Tolkien or Le Guin or whatever, that you um, really try to like put away all the baggage you've been given uh, regarding this author and try to see it for the first time. Like read the book as if it were written as a letter to you, mm. like you would from a friend. You know, you might have heard a lot of bullshit about your friend X, you know, your friend you know, Mario, everybody's talking shit about. And then he sends you an email and you'll make an effort in your head to, okay, let me just read this guy like take this guy as i find him exactly and it's important to do that i think with authors as well you know because man there's no friendlier gesture than to write a book i think a book like that yeah and and every reader is that friend right so yeah we owe them that's a good way that's a good way of thinking about it is that a good segue to william james because we only have an hour (laughs) uh yeah speaking of friends we've often referred to him as someone who feels like a friend or uncle to us yeah yeah. An uncle. Yeah. Uh, and the other day I was leafing through my Library of America volume of his collected writings. It's the one that has varieties of 
religious experience and some collected essays. One of those essays, I was flipping through the table of contents en route to looking up something else, is something I've noticed before but never felt any particular call to read on some mental effects of the earthquake. But this time, I was like, aha, that's right. He was caught up in the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. He was on a like a teaching residency at Stanford. And while he was there, there was this God almighty powerful earthquake that people still remember. I mean, obviously there's nobody still alive who remembers it, but I mean, it's one of those natural disasters that cast a long shadow. And so reading the essay, I was just amazed at how much it spoke to my own feelings of being caught in a very different kind of crisis, which is, of course, the worldwide pandemic. And so I sent that to you, and in a rush of spirits, I recorded myself reading it, which was not such a big deal. It's about 15 minutes long, but absolutely stirred by this piece of writing and curious to know what it did for you. Yeah, no, I agree. I was really moved by it. Whenever I read William James, I always have that feeling that I'm being addressed, you know, and I know you've said the same. There's something so yep. intimate about his style, strangely, because he has a really kind of convoluted prose style sometimes. He's surprisingly yeah. straightforward in this piece. But despite that kind of um, heady prose style, he is also uh, extremely intimate, forthright, honest. Um, there's something very warm about his writing. You just know you would like this guy, you know, and I really felt it in this piece. And it's all about that. I mean, just to sum up the argument as, as quickly as I can, you can maybe get into the details more. It's like what surprised him in this experience of the earthquake in, uh, in California, 1906, was the, first of all, the absence of fear during the event, and then the absence of like the type of panicky emotions you would expect in the survivors after who were like in the, the efforts to repair and restore the city, people were just right. really committed to the moment. And his conclusion is that the panic, that the type of panic we all fear uh, exists only when you're kind of outside that event, when you're looking at yes. it from the outside, when you're spectating, because you're imagining all these things. Like, how could I, how could anybody live through that while you're living, you're enjoying the comforts of your, of your own life. And, um, what he observed in the people on campus, first of all, at Stanford, where he was, but then also when he went to visit the city and saw that, the, the, I mean, San Francisco had been just leveled by this earthquake. When he saw yeah. the, the efforts of basically everybody in San Francisco to care for the, the injured and, and, and rebuild and all that and stop the fires that were raging across the city, uh, he was just struck by the sense of purpose and the sense of the kind of archetypal um, uh, casting that went on. I'm trying to find a word for it. The way people are cast in their natural roles in such a situation. You have natural leaders come up. You have people who just follow instructions really well. It, it seems like every everything's being thought of at the right time. And there's a, like a vast coordinated effort that he basically thinks that humans just kind of fall into that mode when they need to. And he, he found that heartening and encouraging. Of course, you wouldn't think that now looking around at what's going on, but... Well, and that's something that I wanted to talk about. Exactly, yeah. Because this resonated with my own experience. So one crisis that I had to deal with a few years ago in late 2016, so I fell off my bicycle and absolutely crushed my leg. 
you know, spiral compound fracture. It went through both of the bones in my in my shin. Uh, went into the hospital, and they did a scan of my leg. And you know how there's the rule, at least there is in the United States, that the the technicians can't tell you what yeah. they're seeing, that only the doctor can. Same here, yeah. So the technicians didn't say anything, but it was really funny seeing the look on their face like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then like quietly beckoning people in from the hallway, like get a load of this. <laughs> uh, you know, in the it took several months for me to recover. It was extremely painful. I went through a pretty grueling operation. It lasted almost four hours. They just like bolted my shattered leg back together. So I've got a titanium rod running the length of my lower leg wow. with... Uh, like a titanium plate and these 14 honking big screws. But the feeling I had, quite apart from, you know, just hurting and, and having to convalesce from this uh, operation, was of weird cheerfulness. As I was lying in the bed that I had that day that they were kind of doing tasks on me and figuring out that they were going to have to operate, of course, I was thinking like, well, this fucks up everything. Like I'm going to have to figure out how to totally reorganize my life so I can continue doing the things that I have to do. Uh, but in the midst of that alarm and, you know, having to furiously rethink things on the fly, I had this feeling of cheerfulness, of being called to a challenge. There was a sort of a feeling that on some level, I didn't even... Uh, it would be going too far to say that I didn't mind because I certainly minded, but it felt like something to rise to, like a challenge that I was being set and that I was very happy to tackle as best I could. Mm. So when I look back at that period, I don't actually look back on it as a really bad time. It was lonely and because I was just in the house so much and uh, it certainly had its challenges, but it was actually a fairly happy time in a weird way. And so when I read James' account of the general cheerfulness and sort of can-do attitude that everybody had, I was like, well, I get that. I think that human beings, maybe it's almost sort of like the way your brain releases endorphins or something. It's this natural way that the body has of regulating itself in times of crisis. Yeah, There's just something about human beings where we behave often very much as James says, but then you wouldn't think so under the present circumstances, would you? Right. And so why is that? How might we account for this? Perhaps James and I are both much too optimistic uh, and we are ignoring a dark aspect of human nature that isn't willing to rise to a challenge. But I don't think so. I think there's something odd about this particular challenge that's making us all really fucking crazy. It makes it different from something like the earthquake. I think, yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, he does make a distinction at the end between collective crises of the earthquake variety or the pandemic variety and personal crises where everybody's still rejoicing in their normal lives while you experience, you, know, you yeah. lose a child yeah, or absolutely. You, you lose a leg or, you know, whatever. Um, so there's a slight difference in the, the personal tragedy that you immediately compare to the absence of tragedy around you. And you're like, wow, I'm going through this. And I know that people care for me when they're with me, but when they leave the room, I know they're just going back to their lives and I'm still stuck with this problem. And so kudos to you for having that attitude and that very private tragedy that you experience. Cause a lot of people I think do despair. 
although I do think that type of event, that kind of like serious injury or whatever, where you're recovering, there's something about convalescence, which is a pretty special place to be when you're getting better. True. Like it's a, it's a time when, first of all, a lot of your responsibilities are taken from you. So you get to be passive as a person and you also appreciate, you feel a lot of love and compassion and care from people around you. And that's, that's gratifying because it's, those people wouldn't be giving you all that if you were healthy. So there's, I'm, I'm, I think there's something about convalescence which is pretty magical, and I don't want to downplay the the negatives here. But when it comes to like collective crises, it'd be interesting to compare this pandemic to the earthquake because, first of all. The earthquake is a localized thing, whereas this pandemic is something that everyone on Earth is thinking about right now, right. all the time. Yeah. Everybody on Earth, rich or poor, uh, you know, it's just like it's yeah. affecting everyone. Yeah. So that's one difference. But another difference is the social context or the historical uh, moment at which these things are happening. Back then, local organization was much stronger and Basically, every village had all the essential services right there. And that's not the way things work now. We're in a globalized, kind of semi-centralized or, I don't know, in, industrial society. Not that that wasn't industrial then, but it was different, you know. Right. Um, uh, and so today we're all kind of put in the position of spectators. Even once the right. pandemic has hit our own town, we're all spectators looking through our screens at this unfolding catastrophe, which may... The, the picture of it we're getting on our screens may not be the isn't we know it isn't the yeah. actual minute multifaceted reality that's unfolding out there and so we're, we're all living with two crises there's the crisis right. out there which is an actual virus doing its thing and then the crisis we're all being fed in our screens that is paralyzing and traumatizing absolutely so i i think we need to learn to separate these things uh, but it's really hard because we have no we're a house we have no access to the immediate, right? We yeah. have no access. You can't go and help your local hospital here, you know? Like, yeah. So it's really a strange moment, very, very strange moment. Yeah. 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 There's a little passage that I want to read out. This is right at the end where he, he writes, surely the cutting edge of all our usual misfortunes comes from their character of loneliness. We lose our health, our wife or children die, our house burns down or our money is made way with, and the world goes on rejoicing, leaving us on one side and counting us out from its business. In California, everyone to some degree was suffering, and one's private miseries were merged in the vast general sum of privation and in the all-absorbing practical problem of general recuperation. The cheerfulness, or at any rate, the steadfastness of tone was universal. Not a single whine or plaintive word did I hear from the hundred losers whom I spoke to. And here I think he's using losers not in the Donald Trump way uh, <laughs> to denote people he feels superior to, but uh, people who have lost out on something important, like, for example, seeing their homes burned down. Instead of that, there was a temper of helpfulness beyond the counting. You know, actually, I drove out to Minnesota from Indiana and then back again. So like um, spending about 24 hours driving in a 48-hour period uh, to go fetch my son from college. And en route, got to see a little bit of what the country is like. I mean, you know, what you were just talking about is the problem that we have of being put in the position of spectators, onlookers, and not even like spectators as if we were watching other people coping with this in some more or less real world way, but spectators of a highly mediated spectacle 
as it reaches us through Twitter and Facebook and the cable news, or for that matter, podcasts like this one. And it was good, actually. I was happy to be driving through the Midwest. I was able to actually see something of what the world is like out there. Seeing, for example, that there aren't that many cars on the uh, interstate highways, but lots and lots of trucks, for instance. And so they're feeling like, well, you know, some things are continuing. And you realize that that doesn't mean that everything is fine, that everything is just as it was before. But you're seeing the tangible processes of people working to keep this whole thing going. You see the tiny little moments that exist between people. Like I'd stop at a rest stop just to pee and I would see like one other person at the rest stop. There are many fewer people uh, in every public setting that I visited. And, you know, just a little bit more of a smile, a bit more of a nod, maybe a few you know, formulaic words, something, people making human connection. I see people behaving kindly and decently in stores. And of course, you know, I'm sure there's no shortage of media images of people behaving badly, I don't know, grabbing rolls of toilet paper off the shelves and all the rest of it. But it just strikes me as like the problem, the real problem with the coronavirus epidemic, this is my hot take, is at this point, at least for people like us in the technologized West who are experiencing this in quarantine and largely through mediation, it seems to me the problem is precisely that we are put in the role of spectators, that we're watching this and mm-hmm. we are spectators of a set of media that doesn't care at all about how we feel. It's all click driven. It's all numbers driven. Anxiety, panic, fear, and pain will get you to click just as surely as love and connection and warm human feeling. In fact, all those negative emotions probably motivate you better to click because if you're full of warmth and love and human feeling, you're probably going to call your mom or something. But instead, there are these addictive platforms that are engineered to elicit the absolute worst parts of ourselves, the fearful, angry, bitter, paranoid, uncharitable, mean sides of ourselves. And every time I go on Twitter, it's like drinking from a fire hose of sewage. It's just like people who I'm sure all on their own are sweet, kind, decent people. But this is bringing the worst out of us. It's like this feedback loop where you go online and you see this tsunami of panic and pain. And, you know, your rational mind might be telling you, you know, this isn't good for you. But that stuff... The fire hose, that's not hitting your rational brain. That's hitting your monkey mind. That's hitting the the mammalian brain that understands yeah. emotions and feelings, that it understands it's feeling something, and it doesn't understand the idea of mediation. It doesn't, it doesn't understand that just because you're feeling this, it doesn't mean it's actually happening out in the right. world. And so we find ourselves in this kind of hellish situation. We are motivated by our panic and pain to plug into systems that feed on our panic and pain and make it infinitely worse, which reminds me of what we said in our very first full episode, the Garmin Bosia episode, 
or like personifying the capital F fear and thinking about all of the different things we have to be afraid of and thinking about it as an organ, not an organism, but an entity, a being that like the destructive entities in Twin Peaks, they feed on Garmin Bosia. They feed on pain and fear. And this right now feels like, okay, so like something you did in the intro to our last show, which I absolutely loved, is you personified this thing. Mm -hmm. And in personifying the virus, we can start asking like, what does it want? And we can answer yeah. that question to some extent by saying, well, what is it getting from us? And what yeah. is it getting from us? Pain and fear, Garmin Bosia. And it's just bloating on it. It's just sucking it all up and getting stronger and stronger. And something you said that I thought was really important is just sort of like the virus wants above all for us to think that it is all it is. Yeah. And it is all there is. Yeah. Yeah. It is all there is. Yes. And, and, yeah. and there is nothing outside of it. And right. the thing that you said that I really loved is that this is a shadow. This virus is a shadow and we have to look at the light that is casting the shadow. And I quite and I quite like that. From a practical point of view, that might look like, you know, turning off the social media and turning off the cable news. But I think there's also a much more general kind of process that might happen in our lives and our spiritual lives and emotional lives that would answer to the general description of trying to see that light. Right. Agreed a hundred percent. At the same time, there is a tremendous amount of uncertainty. Not so much regarding the vi the disease itself, but the social um, cost of the measures taken to fight the pandemic. Right. Uh, I know that just in the last week in Canada, there were 500,000 applications for EI, employment insurance in Canada. I mean, 500,000 people uh, lost their jobs last week in Canada. Last year, this week, last year, there were 21,000. So we've had various measures taken, like evictions are illegal now in Ontario. Nobody can get evicted. Uh, but that, does, that just means you're going to accumulate this ridiculous debt as you can't pay your rent over right. the next coming months. And right. what's going to happen after? At the same time as I've seen companies do things, and I hate to give any compliments to corporations, but I've seen them do things that would have been unthinkable before. Things as simple as, and as stupidly ridiculously minor as uh, are the phone companies here deciding not to charge for extra use of data mm. this month in mm. Canada. All the companies have decided to do that. Little things like that, things that seemed impossible before or mortgage deferrals that now banks are have to give to Canadians, but they've been finding ways of denying it, but whatever, of, of denying people these deferrals. But still, what we're seeing more than anything, and this to me is the weird thing, is there's a tremendous amount of certainty because we know life can't go on as it has. So that creates a sort of panic, which I think is justified and, right. and, and for real. At the same time, uh, we're also seeing the utter fictionality of our entire economic system. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing I like that Trudeau said last week is he's in self-isolation because his wife has the virus. So he's been coming out, our prime minister coming out every day and giving a little speech and then answering questions in front of his house alone. You know, Trump's always surrounded with a bunch of freaking people who are probably infecting each other on stage there. Um, but uh, but Trudeau's been alone. I've, I've kind of admire him, you know. And one thing he said at the beginning was that uh, no Canadian should place their financial situation above their health. Right. Like I've never heard a government say that. Yeah. Or if I have heard it, it wasn't 
for real. The, the thing is that people are losing their investments. The stock market is about to crash. It could crash. All kinds of horrible things are happening. But a lot of those things are just part of this kind of hyperstitional construct, the economy, so-called, like the actual infrastructure of our society remains. We, we see, I, I don't know, for me, it's the first time in my life where I can viscerally feel the possibility of a fundamental change in our way of organizing ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, very true. And that's something it's, it, it felt impossible. So basically Jameson, you know, uh, his famous thing, like it's easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of capitalism. Yeah. Um, well, maybe that's still true, but now that the end of the world has happened, it's very easy to imagine the end of capitalism, you know, because in yeah. a sense, we are experiencing the end of a world. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think that's hyper, hyperbole at this point. I think that things are changing. It's possible that a year from now we'll go, how, how naive we were to think that capitalism couldn't handle this. That's very possible. But if it, I think basically the world ended in 2008 when they artificially rebooted the economic machine and we've been living off the fumes till then. So I think in a sense, it's already over and it's possible that we keep fooling ourselves that it's not over for another 50 years. But I think that there's a good chance now that at least that some new ways of living and organizing each other ourselves uh, might arise from this. So that, that to me is a, 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 a fearful and, and intimidating and, and um, kind of terrifying prospect, but also a promising prospect. And I'm not saying this as some kind of Marxist who's been waiting with my fucking little book there to, to like dictate <laughs> that. I'm not like that at all, but I'm just saying there are some excesses uh, in our system that need to be curtailed and, and resolved and eliminated. There's, it's way too exploitive. And this might be a move in that direction. Who knows? I mean, it depends on where you're at, where you are in the world and what the leadership is doing and what kind of opportunities they see this as, you know, because we hear talk about really predatorial behaviors now trying to cash in on this. Or oh, yeah. Like fucking profiteers, motherfuckers sitting on 20,000 bottles of Purell. Or yeah. for that matter, medical companies, which let's be real, they're engaging in profiteering just as much as the, as the dude stockpiling hand sanitizer. Or totalitarian-esque bills being passed at Congress. I've heard something about, I didn't really read into it, so I can't really speak to it, but about like the power to detain people without trial, um, banning any type of encryption in corporate communications, that sort of thing. So there could be a move towards a more totalitarian, authoritarian society. We don't know where this is going. No. We live in very, very weird times. And I can understand the uncertainty, but at the same time, there's also always opportunity in such situations and potential, you know. Yeah. Things weren't great before this started. I'm just... No. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is so interesting because, you know, probably a lot of people who listen to the show are just by virtue of, I don't know, if you're kind of into weird shit, presumably you're not a big fan of the status quo, right? So right. probably a lot of people might be kind of people who are critical of capitalism or critical of the way our society is run, critical of politics, critical of the way our economy is, etc. And I'm one of those people, you know, you see inequities, and iniquities in the world, like, for example, the American healthcare system, which has got to be one of the most evil contrivances of anything on the face of the planet. And you're like, God, if only some sort of judgment could be levied against these criminals, these fucking thieves, these rotten fucking criminals who have divided up the world among themselves and are stealing everything not nailed down. 
it's easy to see that there are certain things like that that won't change unless there is a huge discontinuity, something huge happens. It's easy to want such a thing in the abstract, but when actually confronted with the thing, it's quite a different proposition because you realize like, oh, you mean something like this, where the entire world has to self-quarantine for several months? Is that the kind of cataclysm you were hoping for? And when it comes to the point of it, we're always going to say, well, uh, no, I, uh, I was hoping for a cataclysm that would let me keep my money. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> it's funny because it's true. I mean, it's totally the way I feel, Right. Oh, I do want the world to be better, but could it just stay kind of the same for now? Because things are working okay for me. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, one thing I thought actually from reading this, but also thinking back to Patreon Extra that we did, it's part of our conversation with Jeremy Johnson that we released to the Patreon folks. Um, it got me thinking about initiation, a word we throw around often on this show because, of course, it's magic speak um, for a kind of knowledge that changes the knower, something that happens to you. And um, it's something whose meaning is unavoidably a part of your life, even as it also pertains to other initiates, other people who have walked the same path as you. So a simple example that I might give is uh, it's actually something I mentioned in my Diviner's Time paper. Even if we could invent some kind of machine, like the machine in the Matrix could allow you to just download a PhD's worth of knowledge into your skull, you still wouldn't know what it's like to be a PhD, somebody with a doctorate, because there's a difference between just knowledge abstractly and the path you walked to gain that knowledge, the classes you took, the disappointments and setbacks you encountered, the little successes and victories, etc. Um, lots of things in life are like this, but initiation in a sort of classic sense is a dark and scary experience, something that you undergo with feelings of dread and uncertainty, where you are being put to some kind of test that you've been prepared for, perhaps. You've done all the study in your occult order. You've studied all the texts and you've gone through all the grades and here you are now, you're about to be initiated. But, you know, initiations usually are kind of secret. You don't exactly know what you're getting into. And the whole thing is with an initiation, it's just like you're passing through the fire. You're passing through trials or a, a difficult path that however you've been prepared for it, that abstract knowledge of it is not the same thing as actually, you know, walking it and dealing with whatever terrors and challenges it throws at you. And we were talking about a guy that my son knows who got accidentally locked in a cave for three days. And I'm not going to tell the whole story except to say it was kind of grim. He was separated from a spelunking group he was with. They didn't count heads. And then at the end of the expedition, they locked the cave up. There's this gigantic iron grate that, that you could just lock on the mouth of the cave to keep people from getting lost in there. And this friend of my son's was stuck in there for three days and he was unable to get out. He was unable to contact anybody. Nobody knew he was there. And... He was, at a certain point, pretty sure he was going to die, uh, that he was going to starve to death in there before they found him. And they did find him, thank God. He was saved. 
you know, he had a lot to deal with there. It was a traumatizing situation. I remember commenting to you and Jeremy that this was, in a sense, the purest kind of initiation, a kind of initiation that no religious or magical order could ever possibly do and get away with it, where you are not only being put to a test, but you have absolutely no idea if you're going to make it out on the other side. You know, apparently there's, I, can't, I wish I could remember who, but ancient Greeks, maybe I'm just going to attribute everything to the ancient Greeks. Um, one notable initiation was that you would be buried underground for three days. And I was like, wow, that's what happened to this guy, Nicholas knows. But even if we had a special weird studies initiation where to become a, a real weird studies fan, you had to be buried underground for three days. We would have to make sure that certain safeguards were in place. We couldn't just walk away and forget about somebody we had interred in a tomb uh, and be like, oh, they'll figure it out, you hope. Maybe they'll figure it out. Right. But that is, it's exactly that kind of impossible situation that my son's friend was put in. Here he was underground in the dark and the cold. He had to fight a fucking snake. That's not an exaggeration. Right. There was a snake that came for him that he had to fight. That like I can't think of anything more archetypal. He had to survive. He was using like a little wrapper to scrape condensation off the walls and drink it so that he wouldn't get dehydrated. And throughout all of this, he had no idea whether he would make it out on the other side or what would happen. And my point here is that that is the kind of initiation that we are all collectively undergoing right now. Right. It's a planetary initiation. Yeah. We are being put to a test, which is, you know, figuring out how as individuals and as a society, we can manage to contain this very, very contagious disease. And in so doing, we are seeing everything that we thought we knew Everything that seemed as safe as houses, everything that seemed immovable and um, inevitable, capitalism itself, we're seeing everything all of a sudden being thrown up in the air like, who knows? And yeah. unlike with most kinds of initiations, we don't know. We just don't know. So this is like actually an extraordinary moment in our planet's history. In fact, I can't think of another occasion where something happens that so completely touches everybody on everybody the face equally. of the earth equally. Yeah. Nor have I seen a situation where the success of the whole enterprise depended on individual action like this. Yeah. It's not like a war where there are, there's a certain quarter or section of the society that is assigned the role of changing things. This affects everybody equally. And the success of the, this is a message to everybody, stay the fuck home if you can. Uh, the success of the whole effort depends on individual choice. This is a yeah. crazy moment, a weird intersection of collective and individual yeah. uh, in a way that we haven't experienced on earth as cognizantly, I mean, the Black Death was like that, but nobody knew. Everybody just knew what was going on around them, right? <laughs> so like, right. but now we're watching it. And this position of being spectators in a way could be a gift. We can see the shadow. We can see the objective other that is coming. And if there, I mean, I remember writing a piece back in 2007 or something. The, the second thing I ever published, it was for Reality Sandwich. It was called The Future is Imminent. 
And uh, at one point in that essay, I quote this verse from a uh, song by Built to Spill, which I've always loved. The line was, when I was a kid, I saw a light floating high above the trees one night, thought it was an alien, turned out to be just God. I just love that line because (laughs) what does it mean? I, I thought about it and I'm like, it means that we've all been told that there is some kind of objective other, some kind of big other, some kind of thing. And then some of us reject that idea. Some of us embrace it. Some of us fall on our knees. Some of us tell it to fuck off, whatever. The thing is that we all have to react to this idea of this other. And um, the intuition in that song, I think, when I agree with, is that what we need in, in our time where we've, we've become Gnostic moderns, where we are seeing ourselves, as we mentioned in a couple of shows ago, as the only daimon in, in the universe, we need to be confronted with an imminent God. With like, It's like Heidegger said when yeah. he saw the photos of the earth. He said, only a God can save us now. Mm. And um, this virus is a God. It yeah. is an other. It is an intelligence. Yeah. It is fucking clever. Yes. The way that it uses children as a conduit without infecting them, yeah. uh, without like harming them. I mean, a virus is a kind of weird intelligence, right? Yeah. We are being confronted with this other. This is the alien. It doesn't need to look like a gray. This is it. And we have to learn to live with it. We can only, <laughs> yeah. we have to learn to live and to share a universe with this thing and with everything else that'll come in its wake, everything else we've pretended, like we were talking about animals earlier, the intelligence of animals, the intelligence of the non-human, the presence of all these other powers in, in the world. And we have to learn to contend with all that. And it seems to me like the only way we can actually honor the situation is not by reverting to a kind of modernist, only humans are alive, only humans think, meaning it's, it exists only inside human skulls kind of mentality. We're being called to recognize that there is meaning, intention, uh, intelligence everywhere in this universe and that we have to kind of like come to grips with that. It is an incredible moment in that sense. And it's, I mean, you could not design a better initiation to make us, I think, realize what it is we, we are called on to realize. Because... I mean, I don't want to, again, I don't want to downplay the tremendous danger of this pandemic, but it could have been Ebola, right? It could have been something that attacks children, especially. It could have been a lot of things. But so far, it's something that has allowed us to maintain the infrastructure, the kind of functioning of our society while also dealing with these ideas and these realities. So I'm not saying that it's a positive. It is what it is. But at the same time, it's an opportunity. And, and we know we can beat this thing. But it, it, it requires us to think differently and it requires us to just crank the empathy dial up to 11. We lived yeah. in a, we, we lived in a yeah. tremendously ageist society and we know that most of us would be okay if we caught this thing. I may have had it already. My family, I'm not going to, we didn't get tested, so I can't say, but we were all sick. Our daughters uh, were in proximity with someone who, who did have it. So uh, all this to say that it's in the name of the most vulnerable among us that we are doing this. And that is a, an amazing thing to see in our day and age, in our ageist society, yeah. you know, like, yeah. um, and I, I don't know, I just can't help, but despite the, the uncertainty and the fear, I just can't help, but see the other side of things. I can't help, but see, like you were saying, those nods or smiles between people it's almost like, well, it's almost like the virus is saying, okay, you guys wanted to be isolated each on your fucking little devices here. You don't have a choice anymore. Enjoy yeah. it. <laughs> you yeah. can't even touch each other. And all of a sudden we're realizing 
this, these things. We're realizing how important personal contact is. And when oh, we're deprived man. Of it. It reminds me of an old Twilight Zone story. Do you remember uh, there was a period, I think, of the 80s, maybe, when the Twilight Zone was rebooted? Yeah, yeah, I remember that, yeah. There's a story about a man who, in a future dystopic society, is punished by the courts for crimes against kindness. Like, he's not a very kind person. And he is sentenced to a year of social ostracization. And the way that works is he has, like, a mark put upon him, some kind of like a chip or something that everybody can see that's uh, like implanted on him. And it is against the law to acknowledge the existence of somebody with one of these implants. I think that's how that works. And so this guy is able to go about his day, do anything he wants. He could go to, to a salad bar and just like keep loading up his plate. He could you know, fucking masturbate in public. Uh, they obviously, they don't suggest that in that show. But like, he can do all <laughs> kinds of shit, uh, and he's totally free to because if somebody were to tell him to stop, that would be acknowledging his existence. And so it's a little bit like uh, Groundhog Day, where at the beginning, you know, the protagonist is finding all kinds of shit he can get away with because it's his new situation, but it just starts to corrode his soul. He becomes so deeply stricken by the sadness of his isolation. Actually, this, the ending of the story is sort of sweet. Finally, he makes it through and just barely, like it almost kills him. And then he runs into somebody else who has the same, like the mark of Cain, like he, he can't right. acknowledge his existence. And this guy is losing it, just crying and begging for some kind of human connection. And this guy who has just sort of gotten out of isolation because he's learned his lesson of empathy maybe a little too well. He can't, uh, even knowing that he's setting himself up for another year of isolation, he can't help but embrace this stranger. Right. thing I want to bring up is my prophetic dream. This is what got us off right. on the whole personification thing. Worth noting, William James also personifies the earthquake. Really interesting line here. He says, first, I personified the earthquake as a permanent individual entity. It was the earthquake of my friend B's augury. So a friend who suggested that he might encounter an earthquake during his trip out to Stanford. It came, moreover, directly to me. It stole in behind my back and once inside the room had me all to itself and could manifest itself convincingly. Animus and intent were never more present in any human action, nor did any human activity ever more definitely point back to a living agent as its source and origin. And then he goes on to say about how all of the people he talked to who lived through the earthquake felt the same thing. It expressed intention. It was vicious. It wanted to show its power and so on. Um, And... That was very interesting to me. It reminded me of something you said on this show a while ago. You were talking about like a storm 
that you weathered when you were out camping by yourself in Algonquin Park. And it was like this vicious, crazy storm. And you were safe inside your tent, but you felt... Somewhat safe. Somewhat <laughs> safe-ish. But, it doesn't feel safe, but yeah. But you felt overwhelmingly, the, the thing you felt overwhelmingly in that situation was a kind of evil intent, animosity, this thing that hated you, J.F. Yeah. Martell, that was fucking with you. And it's, I found it interesting to find that reflected in James's own yeah. account. Yeah. And he says later, he says that he totally understands now the tendency of our forebears to mythologize or to like personify these forces. He's like, in the moment, there's no other way of dealing with it. That's just the way it happens. It manifests as a person. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, our scientific way of like explaining away such phenomena, that always comes after the fact. And we touched on this when we were talking about Bruno Latour's research, which shows that scientists always begin with agents and then try to abstract them out into mathematical right. formula, but right. but reality always manifests as as endowed with agency, as meaningful, as purposeful. So, yeah, and it's the same with this. I, I mean, and then your dream, of course, is th it was an entity floating that was some, above. That was, I mean, that was some weird shit. Like I've had some weird experiences over the years, but that one is really weird, and it happened in public. Like I posted this in our patron, so. If you haven't listened to our last show and the marvelous introduction that JF did to it, that was the Hillman episode. Um, what happened was back in October 2019, I had a dream about what looked like a virus, like a, I don't know, two or three feet across, floating in a suburban dining room. Not my dining room, just a dining room. And something that looked sort of like a virus, like a big ball with uh, spikes sticking out of it. Those spikes are called peplomers, it turns out. And the whole dream had to do with this thing colonizing reality, turning reality into itself, transforming itself into everything and everybody. And the feeling of awful, malignant intelligence of this thing. I wrote in my letter to you, all became mind and the mind was the virus. And you read it out loud in your introduction and then you were like, now listen to it. And I was like, shit, for that passage you read out point by point, it perfectly described the weirdness at the heart of this thing, this sense of an agency, an mm -hmm. entity that has some business to do with us and the peculiar horror of this business being the way that we see our reality being reformatted by this virus. Yeah. And this is back in October. I forgot I'd even written the thing. I was looking for something else and encountered it. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Like we have a sort of philosophical interpretation of what the dream means. But clearly in retrospect, this was a dream about like what's happening to us now. Weird. I think so. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if lots of people had similar dreams in the months, in the run up to the. To I would that be very interested in knowing that. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to know that. Um, regardless, though, it, it does feel like a prophetic dream, like you were picking up on something that was on the horizon. I'm not sure where that virus was at in October. For all we know, that was when it got transmitted, uh, mm. when, when it first got into the humans. I don't know. Maybe that'd be interesting to know, but it, it wouldn't change anything either way because um, 
I, I still stand by the way we interpreted it. That was one interpretation, but as such things go, there's many interpretations. And now we are all confronted with this, uh, this, this virus in reality. I compared it to Azathoth in yeah. my response yeah, to the right. dream. I like that. And I think that still works. I mean, in fact, I just recorded H.P. Lovecraft's short story, Narlothotep, as a kind of little Easter egg we can put out there for people um, just because it's so uncannily connected the way he describes society being transformed by this this emissary of the outer gods right. is so close to what we're, we're going through and it's a very similar thing to your dream so that's a really good um, point yeah yeah but but what does that imply again I always go back to the implications if you had this dream then there's a whole stratum of reality. If we embrace, if we accept the prophetic nature of your dream, then we live in a world where prophecy is real. Yep. We don't live in a cold, shitty, materialist world where viruses can just have their way with us and we're just at the mercy of these things. There's much more and, at play. And it means nothing. And it means nothing. There's much more uh, at play here. Um, all the more reason to believe that not only that we can get out of this, but that this somehow is moving us in a direction we need to go in, you yeah. know, and that we need to just do our part and trust that there's, if not a plan, then at least, you know, uh, I don't know that we're, we're with that some kind of, some kind of artwork, <laughs> some kind of stories yeah. being told. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. 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 And, uh, if I had to sum up what my advice would be, such as it is, as if I am in a position to give advice and just as scared as everyone else, probably scared, more scared than a lot of people. But I'd say reading James's essay on the earthquake makes you really feel like, you know, courage. We need yeah. courage and we have courage. You can find that. Uh, turn off the fucking TV and stop reading Twitter because that is just draining your battery constantly. Whatever energy of, that you have to devote to courage is being siphoned off every moment that you're on social media. So, you know, marshal it, husband it, uh, look after it, take care of it. But JF, you were looking at uh, creativity as a way of dealing with this. And I think that that's really important. I think courage is an important way of dealing with this. And finally, you know, love. Yeah. We're being confronted with one another. We're all locked up in our houses with our loved ones. Well, take advantage of this. You know, I've been trying to make the best of it myself. Um, stay close, but keep your distance. <laughs> <laughs> Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.
Nyarlathotep by H.P. Lovecraft Nyarlathotep, the crawling chaos. I am the last. I will tell the audient void. I do not recall distinctly when it began, but it was months ago. The general tension was horrible. To a season of political and social upheaval was added a strange and brooding apprehension of hideous physical danger, a danger widespread and all-embracing, such a danger as may be imagined only in the most terrible phantasms of the night. I recall that the people went about with pale and worried faces and whispered warnings and prophecies which no one dared consciously repeat or acknowledge to himself that he had heard. A sense of monstrous guilt was upon the land, and out of the abysses between the stars swept chill currents that made men shiver in dark and lonely places. There was a demoniac alteration in the sequence of the seasons. The autumn heat lingered fearsomely, and everyone felt that the world and perhaps the universe had passed from the control of known gods or forces to that of gods or forces which were unknown. And it was then that Nyarlathotep came out of Egypt. Who he was, none could tell, but he was of the old native blood and looked like a pharaoh. The fellahin knelt when they saw him, yet could not say why. He said he had risen up out of the blackness of twenty-seven centuries, and that he had heard messages from places not on this planet. Into the lands of civilization came Nyarlathotep, swarthy, slender, and sinister, always buying strange instruments of glass and metal and combining them into instruments yet stranger. He spoke much of the sciences, of electricity and psychology, and gave exhibitions of power which sent his spectators away speechless, yet which swelled his fame to exceeding magnitude. Men advised one another to see Nyarlathotep, and shuddered. And where Nyarlathotep went, rest vanished, for the small hours were rent with the screams of nightmare. Never before had the screams of nightmare been such a public problem. Now the wise men almost wished they could forbid sleep in the small hours, that the shrieks of cities might less horribly disturb the pale, pitying moon as it glimmered on green waters gliding under bridges and old steeples crumbling against a sickly sky. I remember when Nyarlathotep came to my city, the great, the old, the terrible city of unnumbered crimes. My friend had told me of him, and of the impelling fascination and allurement of his revelations, and I burned with eagerness to explore his uttermost mysteries. My friends said they were horrible and impressive beyond my most fevered imaginings, that what was thrown on a screen in the darkened room prophesied things none but Nyarlathotep dared prophesy, and that in the sputter of his sparks there was taken from men that which had never been taken before, yet which showed only in the eyes." and I heard it hinted abroad that those who knew Nyarlathotep looked on sights which others saw not. It was in the hot autumn that I went through the night with the endless crowds to see Nyarlathotep, through the stifling night and up the endless stairs into the choking room. And shadowed on a screen, I saw hooded forms amidst ruins, and yellow evil faces peering from behind fallen monuments, and I saw the world battling against darkness, against the waves of destruction from ultimate space, whirling, churning, struggling around the dimming, cooling sun. 
Then the sparks played amazingly around the heads of the spectators, and hair stood up on end whilst shadows more grotesque than I can tell came out and squatted on the heads. And when I, who was colder and more scientific than the rest, mumbled a trembling protest about imposture and static electricity, Nyarlathotep drove us all out, down the dizzying stairs into the damp, hot, deserted midnight streets. I screamed aloud that I was not afraid, that I never could be afraid, and others screamed with me for solace. We swore to one another that the city was exactly the same and still alive. And when the electric lights began to fade, we cursed the company over and over again and laughed at the queer faces we made. We believe we felt something coming down from the greenish moon, for when we began to depend on its light, we drifted into curious involuntary formations that seemed to know our destinations though we dared not think of them. Once we looked at the pavement and found the blocks loose and displaced by grass, with scarce a line of rusted metal to show where the tramways had run. And again we saw a tram car, lone, windowless, dilapidated, and almost on its side. When we gazed around the horizon, we could not find the third tower by the river and noticed that the silhouette of the second tower was ragged at the top. Then we split up into narrow columns, each of which seemed drawn in a different direction. One disappeared in a narrow alley to the left, leaving only the echo of a shocking moan. Another filed down a weed-choked subway entrance, howling with the laughter that was mad. My own column was sucked toward the open country and presently felt the chill which was not of the hot autumn. For as we stalked out on the dark moor, we beheld around us the hellish moon glitter of evil snows, trackless, inexplicable snows, swept asunder in one direction only, where lay a gulf all the blacker for its glittering walls. The column seemed very thin indeed as it plodded dreamily into the gulf. I lingered behind, for the black rift in the green-litten snow was frightful, and I thought I had heard the reverberations of a disquieting wail as my companions vanished, but my power to linger was slight. As if beckoned by those who had gone before, I half floated between the titanic snowdrifts, quivering and afraid into the sightless vortex of the unimaginable. Screamingly sentient, dumbly delirious, only the gods that were can tell. A sickened, sensitive shadow writhing in hands that are not hands, and whirled blindly past ghastly midnights of rotting creation, corpses of dead worlds with sores that were cities, charnel winds that brush the pallid stars and make them flicker low, beyond the world's vague ghosts of monstrous things, half-seen columns of unsanctified temples that rest on nameless rocks beneath space and reach up to dizzy vacua above the spheres of light and darkness. And through this revolting graveyard of the universe, the muffled, maddening beating of drums and thin, monotonous whine of blasphemous flutes from inconceivable, unlighted chambers beyond time, the detestable pounding and piping, whereunto dance slowly, awkwardly, and absurdly the gigantic, tenebrous ultimate gods, the blind, voiceless, mindless gargoyles whose soul is Nyarlathotep.